Well, I want to go all the way back to the beginning of the service and I want to talk about the dancing gorilla. Half of you saw as clear as day. The other half of you had no clue that ever happened. And that's, a, that's about average. If you knew it was coming because you've seen the video before, you can actually trick yourself into not seeing it by actively counting the passes. I've seen this video a dozen times, and if I count the passes, I can still not see the bear. But then, if you've seen it before, they threw in the extra curtain-changing colors and the person leaving. And so if you've seen it before, that's new, and you didn't see that happen. And then the point is, when our focus is on the wrong thing, we miss what's right in front of us. It should have been obvious to all of us. We should have all said, what in the world is the dancing bear doing there? But because we were focused on the basketball, on the white team, our mind just erased that part as it went by. And when it comes to Easter, there are a lot of things that can distract us from what Easter is really all about. And if we allow these things to distract us, we can see Jesus go right by and the really obvious thing we should have seen and should have caught will be missed because of the distractions. So in your notes it says the Dancing Gorilla video shows us how easy it is to miss the obvious when we've been directed to pay attention to something completely different. And here's some distractions. Number one in your notes, distractions, misdirections around Easter include the Easter Bunny and all the candy, which by the way I'm all in favor of candy if you can't tell. Uh, I enjoy it all year long, and, you know, I love the Easter candy, especially the little peanut butter eggs. If you got one, just drop it off in the back. <laughs> There's the new dresses and the fancy clothes. We have matching outfits in the Conrad family over here. Uh, the Merce family often does that as well. I love that stuff. It's great. I, I didn't like it when I was included. I, I never, never liked being given a new shirt and saying, you're going to wear this. But I appreciate it in other families. It's, it's really good. But it can be a distraction. The family dinner, get everything ready, all the desserts and the main dishes and the salads, and then you got to have the Easter egg hunt. You know, is is when you're the teenager or a young adult at the Easter egg hunt, it's a, it goes on forever. But the kids love it, so we do them anyway. And then there's the pictures of the kids and the family we take every year. Everyone's together. Let's take take the pictures while we're all dressed up and look nice. That's what we were always told. And so we get the pictures and. And, and, and B, or number two in your notes, I want to say this clearly, not a single one of these things is bad. But each one can become a distraction. Now you can do each and every one of these, you can do all four of these, you can even do more things like this. But instead of saying watch the passes, you say watch the gorilla. And so we can have fun with the Easter Bunny and the candy and the clothes and the eggs and the dinner. We can have fun with that, we can fellowship together. We can do really good things in that process, but we need to say, don't forget about Jesus, because he is the reason for Easter. The resurrection of Christ, if you're not aware, is the reason we celebrate Easter. We were celebrating the risen Lord long before there was an Easter bunny, or peanut butter chocolate eggs, or the idea of getting dressed up together. We were celebrating Christ long before that because he rose from the dead. So those are all really uh, good things that can distract us. But number three, there's some bad things that can distract us. I, I called it in your notes propaganda. There's propaganda out there. 
if you get your Google machine out and you type in the right words, you can find a video that will tell you that Jesus didn't really die. Now, how he survived uh, a, a beating and a crown of thorns and being crucified, nailed to a cross and a spirit aside, how he survived that, I have no idea. Uh, that's not really explained, but they say that the cool, the cool tomb had healing properties. And the coolness of the tomb where he was for three days allowed him to revive himself so that he was able to walk out. And that's why the tomb was empty. So he didn't really die. And there's a couple of major religions that teach this. And, and really what they're saying is don't believe the Bible, don't believe in Jesus. And if we, if we listen to that and watch that, we can, and especially online, we'll be down a rabbit hole very quickly. We'll be listening to all kinds of stuff. We might hear that they forgot where the grave was. When they couldn't produce a grave with a body, they, they just said, well, they forgot where the grave was. So Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who put the body in the grave, forgot where the grave was, even though it belonged to Joseph of Arimathea. And, and the, the priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, who were dead set on not giving Jesus any credit at all, could not investigate enough to find the grave. And the women who followed these two men to the grave and saw him placed there and then came back later to add more spices. They were all also misled and didn't know where it was. So all these people just couldn't find the grave. And if I really knew where it was, he'd still be there because obviously he didn't raise from the dead. And I hope most of us hear that and we go, yeah, that's, that's crazy. But when you head down that rabbit hole, we start believing things that don't make sense. He didn't really die. They forgot where the tomb was. Uh, the disciples stole the body. This was the first century explanation. The disciples stole the body. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they actually paid the guards to say that the disciples stole the body. And so for the disciples to steal the body, you, you know, there's a couple of problems. One, they didn't have any reason to steal the body because they didn't really believe there was going to be a resurrection. They were defeated and they were cowering and they were hiding because if their leader faced this kind of punishment. They thought maybe we will too. So they were laying low. The next obstacle is, is the soldiers that guarded the tomb. Don't think of one or two guys like you might see in a cartoon or something. Think of a, a, small, a small group. I can't remember what they call them, but usually it was eight guards. So four could be sleeping while four were guarding. And they would switch off so that no one got tired. And so for the disciples to steal the body, a couple things would have to happen. All eight soldiers would have to fall asleep. And the disciples would have to be able to sneak in without making a whole bunch of noise, roll a stone away without making a whole bunch of noise, and march off with the body without making a bunch of noise, and, and then leave the garments behind. That would be quite difficult. So it doesn't really make any sense. And, it, and it eventually... It was, it was known that that wasn't what happened, but that was still being told when the Bible was being written. And then there's people that say, well, the whole thing is fiction. There, there was no Jesus. There were no miracles. The whole thing is just an elaborate story that was invented, and, and people needed to profit from it. And so they continued on the story so that their movement wouldn't die. And, and this kind of propaganda, it creates distractions that cause us to doubt and then we just focus on the other things. And pretty soon, we're not thinking about Jesus rising from the dead. We're concentrating on things that, 
in the big scheme of things, don't matter. So there's a lot of distractions, and that was the point of the Dancing Gorilla video, is, is just to, to realize we can easily be distracted or misdirected, and therefore we need to focus. So that was the Christ Supremacy video. Uh, just a four or five minutes of a long video just highlighting some of the things about Christ that we should be focusing on today. In your notes, let's fill in some blanks. Number one, uh, it was clear from the video that he is God. He's not created by God, and he's not a part of God. He is God. He is part of the Trinity. He is God. He is all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's, all, he's omniscient. Uh, the word in the video was supreme or supremacy. He is God. And, and being God uh, just says things about him that we need to take in. Number two, he's Lord, which means he's in charge. He has authority. He holds a position. He is the person who gets to make the final decisions. He's God. He's Lord. And number three, he is the Christ. And that line's long enough. You can write Savior next to that. He is the Christ and he's the Savior. Those words mean the same thing, which means he came to this earth for the purpose of sins being forgiven. So our relationship with God was broken when Adam and Eve sinned, and, and that's why we face death, and that's why all these things happen in a world that, that aren't good, and, and, and evil takes place. But God wants our relationship to be restored, so he sent Christ, his son, God, down to earth to live as a human, so that he would be an adequate sacrifice, which is number four. He was the atoning sacrifice. Before these events took place, the, the priest would, would, would slay a lamb, and the lamb's blood would go on the altar, and that was a covering that lasted a little while. And it was a picture of a future covering that would be eternal. Well, now that Jesus is on the scene, he is called the Lamb of God, the chosen one to be the sacrifice that is complete and final. So his Death and the blood that was shed at his crucifixion is not a temporary covering of sin. It is a permanent covering of sin, allowing us to gain forgiveness. And then number five, he's, he's coming again to bring the work to completion. It, it's not done. The price has been paid. The work has been done. But there's still more to come. Jesus will come again, and, and he'll meet believers in the sky. We call that the rapture. Jesus will come part way down, blow a trumpet, or a trumpet will be blown. And, and the believers will rise, both the living believers and the dead believers. And that will, that will gather the attention of the world. And that's, that's Jesus' way of saying, hey, time is short. Recognize who I am. Put your faith in me, because the next time I come, it will be too late to change your mind. And then we have seven years. It's called the tribulation period. At the end of the seven years, Christ returns again, this time in a much different format. He doesn't come to meet the believers. He comes with the believers. And he's going to engage in a battle against Satan and his followers. And it will be a very short battle. And, and, and Jesus will win that battle. And at that point in time, we usher in the thousand-year reign of Christ, and, and there is no longer an opportunity to be saved. So time is short, but he is coming again. 
This could be tomorrow. It could be 100 years from now. We don't know when that is. But Christ's supremacy is, is the key. If he wasn't supreme, if he wasn't the Son of God, if he wasn't our Lord, and if he wasn't the Savior, then there would be no atonement. But because he is these things, there is an atonement. We can have forgiveness of sin. And when he returns to call those who belong to him at the rapture, we will meet him if we believe. So those are the videos we started with. That's kind of the introduction to the sermon. The question today is what happens if we narrow our focus and just look at Jesus? When we realize it's not about the bunny or anything else, we narrow our focus and look at Jesus, what happens? Well, we can look into Scripture and we can see what happened when certain people narrowed their focus and looked at Jesus. So number one, in your notes, you can write the soldier. The soldier at the foot of the cross proclaimed, Surely this is the Son of God. And when I, I want to read this passage to you. It's Mark 15. 33 to 39. It says, At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. So for three hours, it's dark. Think nighttime darkness, okay? And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then some of those standing near heard this. Some of those standing near heard this. They said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with some wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of, the, in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. Now what caused the centurion, the soldier, to say surely this is the Son of God? Well, let's, let's fill in some, some blanks there. A, in your notes, write the word darkness. We read that in verse 33. Darkness fell over the land, a nighttime darkness. Not, not, not an eclipse, I don't believe. Not just shadows from clouds, but nighttime darkness fell over the land which would have got anyone's attention at noon, right? So darkness fell over the land. That was the first clue. Then B, there was an earthquake. We didn't read about the earthquake in this passage, but when we read all the Gospels and bring the story together, Matthew tells us that there was an earthquake. Matthew also tells us that not only did the centurion say, surely this is the Son of God, but also some of the guards so you can put a little S up on top if you want. The soldiers at the foot of the cross proclaim, surely this is the Son of God. There was darkness. There was an earthquake. C, Jesus said, it is finished. He said this out loud, and they heard him say this, and they, they heard how he said it. And when he said, it is finished, he, does, he didn't mean, I'm, I'm going to die now, or, or I'm done, I'm getting down. What he meant was, I have completed the work. I have completed the sacrifice. The atonement has been offered. Everything is, is complete, and now we, we have all that we need for sin to be forgiven. It is finished. And then D, we have Jesus' response to the repentant criminal. Backstory here, there are three people being crucified. Jesus is in the middle. There is a criminal on each side. Partway into the crucifixion, both criminals are 
are badgering Jesus and saying, if you're the Son of God, get yourself off this cross. They were, they were just joining in with the crowd. And then partway through, after seeing these same things, after seeing the darkness and the earthquake, and seeing how Jesus spoke with his, his mother and the Apostle John and, and all the interactions, one of the criminals looked at Jesus and looked at the other criminal and said to the other criminal, you know what, we should not be doing this. We deserve to be here, but he doesn't. And he looked back at Jesus and he said, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And at that exact moment in time, Jesus looked at him and said, today you will be with me in paradise. So his response to the repentant criminal who was recently mocking him, that God was able to watch. And then E, in verse 39 that we read, he saw how he died. Okay, well, how did he die? What did that look like? How did Jesus die? Well, he died with forgiveness in his heart. Okay, he, he wasn't angry. He didn't call down curses. He didn't say things he shouldn't say. He, he, didn't, he didn't react to their bitterness and their anger. He had forgiveness in his heart. He was kind. Kind to the criminal. It was just mocking him. Kind to him saying, yeah, forgiveness is yours. He was kind to the apostle and his, and his mother. He was kind to those right. He said, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He had humility. At any point in time, because he was God and because he was Lord, and because he was supreme, he could have called down angels to remove him from the cross. He could have spoken a word and, and had all the soldiers eliminated from the scene. He could have responded at any point in time with, I'm done, but he didn't. He humbly followed through the crucifixion and the pain and everything that went on there so that we could have forgiveness of sin. And then he was sinless. And he remained sinless on the cross. We know, we, not something they saw, but we know he was also obedient. It was part of God's plan. And he was obedient to that plan. So how he died made a difference. And the soldier at the foot of the cross focused on Jesus, because that was his job. He was in charge of the crucifixion, and he had three people to watch, heard all these conversations, saw Jesus' face, saw how he approached things and how he died, heard the conversations, heard all these things, and his response was, surely this is the Son of God. So what happens when we focus in on, on Jesus' crucifixion? When we bring in all the information and all the details, well, if you were a soldier that day standing at the cross, your response was, surely this is the Son of God. That's what happened when they focused in. There's some more folks on the back side of your notes. There's uh, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. You may not know who they are, but I'm going to tell you. But Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus came out of hiding to honor Jesus' body. So right up front, their response to having a bird's-eye view of Jesus, their response to seeing everything that the guards saw, their response was to come out of hiding and honor Jesus' body. So who were these folks? I'm going to let you look up these scriptures here. The references are there for you. In John 19.38, we, we learned that Joseph was a secret disciple of Christ. He was fearful of Jew, the Jewish leaders. In Mark 15, we learn that Joseph was a prominent member of the council. 
Okay, we'll, we'll finish that sentence in a minute. He was a prominent member of the council. So he was part of the Sanhedrin. He was part of the government, and he believed in Jesus. So he was a person in the religious government who believed in Jesus, but if he said that out loud, he would lose his job, he would lose his prestige, he would lose his power, he may even lose his, his fortune, he may lose his family. He had everything to lose, and he was fearful of that, so he kept his belief secret. But, the rest of the sentence, he went boldly to Pilate. And when it says went boldly to Pilate, you've got to remember Pilate was the Roman person in charge. He did not mix with the Jewish people. If you went to see Pilate, who was like a king, if you will, you went to see Pilate, you were in danger. So he placed himself in danger going to see Pilate, and he said, I want to get the body off the cross, and I want to get it in a grave, and I want to honor Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. Well, I'm sure there were onlookers and there were people paying attention and that word would have gotten to the other members of the Sanhedrin awful fast. And the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who were happy that Jesus was dead would not want him to be honored. So by going boldly to Pilate, he also boldly put himself on the line. All those things I described, now those, those are all on the table. Lose his job, lose his position, lose his family, all these things. But he went boldly to Pilate. John 3.1 tells us that Nicodemus was a member of the Jewish ruling council, same group of people. Nicodemus was, had, had position and power. He had authority, and, and, and he was uh, considered a teacher. He was a, a, one of the prominent members as well. In John 3.4, we learn that Nicodemus went secretly to meet Jesus. He met him secretly at night trying to figure out who he was. This is the conversation where Jesus says, Nicodemus, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus says, shall I enter into my mother's womb again? And Jesus says, no. You need to be born of the Spirit. This, that whole conversation took place at night, fairly early in Jesus' ministry. And Nicodemus was hearing what Jesus said and seeing what Jesus did and recognized that Jesus was not just a normal person. And he had lots of questions. And so they met at night, and he asked his questions. And in the end... He wasn't willing to publicly follow Christ. We don't know that he was even willing at that point to secretly follow Christ. We know that at some point in time in John chapter 7, Nicodemus tried to defend Jesus. It was a weak defense, and it was a timid defense, but he tried, maybe testing the waters to see how it would go, and it didn't go well. But in John 19.39, we know that Nicodemus joined Joseph, and Nicodemus brought 75 pounds of myrrh, of myrrh and aloes. 75 pounds. Now, they didn't embalm their bodies. And if you remember from the story of Lazarus, after three days, he would stinketh. Okay? King James there. He would stink. And so, this 75 pounds of spice, its sole purpose was to, so that you could be near the body, but it wouldn't smell as it decayed. This, this was equivalent to uh, the tribute for a king. So a king that would be laid to rest would be given this amount of spices. And this amount of spices you could lay on the table next to the body and never smell the decay. That's how much spice was here. This was what would be given to a king. And remember the women were trying to bring more later. So Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus both 
recognized who Jesus was, but were afraid to, to speak out and afraid to follow him publicly. But after observing him and seeing him and hearing him, seeing the same things and hearing the same things that these, these soldiers saw, when that was over, they were willing to risk everything simply to honor the man that they had lost in death. And, and now they weren't willing to, to walk with him when he was alive because they were afraid. Now they're willing to risk the exact same things for someone who's dead. That's what their encounter with Jesus, when their eyes were focused on Jesus, and they were no longer thinking about their reputation or their salary or their position and their authority and all these things, when they were no longer thinking about that stuff, that was their response. I want to look at John chapter 20. I want to read you verses 1 through 9. It says, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciples, or disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. The other disciple is John. Verse 5. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in his place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So you, in, in your blank there, you can just write the word John. John immediately believed when he saw the empty tomb and the burial clothes inside of it. So just to, just to retell the story a little bit, uh, the crucifixion has taken place. It's now Sunday morning. Mary Magdalene uh, arrives at the tomb. She sees the stone rolled away, does not go inside, and she automatically assumes someone has moved the body. Probably assumed that either the Romans or the Sanhedrin had moved the body so that he could not be honored like they planned to. And so she went to find Peter and John. Why did she go to find Peter and John? Because no one would listen to her or care what she thought in, a, in a, a, a public setting like that. She went to Peter and John because they could go make a fuss. They could go make an inquiry. Peter and John hear the news. They take off. They go to uh, the tomb. John gets there first, and he just looks inside, sees the the stone rolled away, kind of looks inside, and he's kind of like, I don't know what to do. Peter barrels up, runs right past him, goes right inside, sees everything, and John follows. Then the most important thing in that passage, finally, the other disciple, which was John, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. So John now, his entire focus is on the, the Jesus who's not there. How did he know Jesus was not there? He said he believed. What did he believe? He believed in the resurrection. How did the empty tomb confirm to John there was a resurrection? Interestingly, the next verse says they did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So he believed he's risen, but he doesn't even know why. 
They never caught on. And, and, and they weren't aware of what was happening. But he gets in there, and Jesus is risen. He believes he's risen, but he doesn't know why. How did he know he had risen? What caused that belief? Well, he walked in, and the burial cloth was all there. It wasn't rotted up in the corner. It was still wrapped in the shape of Jesus' body, probably laying flat. But it was still wrapped. You can't get a body out of, of the burial cloth without unwrapping it, and then you certainly can't rewrap it so it looks like the body just disappeared from the inside. And then the cloth that was covering Jesus' face was folded and sitting next to it. And so John looked, and, and obviously there was a body that's not there. The grave clothes are still there, but the body's gone, and he believed that Jesus rose from the dead. It took him a little bit longer to put everything together, that this was prophesied and predicted and necessary, but he immediately believed. So when John's focus was totally on the fact that Jesus wasn't in the grave, his response was belief. Number four in your notes, it's from Acts 2. And we won't read Acts 2, but if you were to go there and look, you would know this is the story of Pentecost. Pentecost took place after Jesus ascended into heaven. Uh, the, the apostles are all gathered together, and all of a sudden, there's flames above their head, and they start speaking in foreign languages. They speak in, in, in many languages. In fact, there's more languages spoken than there were apostles present, so that's kind of a double miracle. People heard them speak in their own language, and they gathered together, and then Peter preached. And Peter preached a sermon that, that kind of indicates that he had put together the Old Testament and Jesus' resurrection, because he reminded them of that. Then he reminded them of what Jesus had done while he was on earth, and, and then he told them what to do. They said, what shall we do? They believed Jesus had risen from the dead. They believed that they were guilty of his blood because Peter said, you are the ones who said crucify him. And they said, what do we do? And he said, repent and be baptized. So repent. Accept the forgiveness that's being offered you. Recognize Jesus is not only God, but he is Lord and he's the Messiah. Recognize these things. Embrace it. Be forgiven of your sins. And then as a public announcement of your faith, go and be baptized. In other words, put yourself on the line. Go identify yourself so that you are in danger of losing your job, being kicked out of the synagogue, not having any prestige or power among your community. Risk that to proclaim your faith in Christ. And if you really have faith in Christ, that's a risk you're willing to take. And that's what he said. Repent and be baptized. And 3,000 people did that. So at that moment in time, when, when these 3,000 people had their attention on the message, and Peter spoke specifically about Jesus, when they were no longer distracted by the things around them, and they focused on Jesus and heard the message preached by Peter, they responded with belief. Number five, this is really, this is really good. Acts chapter 6, verse 7. Just read one verse this time. It says, so the word of the God, the, the, so the word of God spread, and, and the so is means as a result of, so as a result of what? Interesting story. 
the church was growing and, and they were taking care of one another, but there was a group of widows that, that got overlooked and no one was taking care of them. And so they complained and they said, hey, is it because we're from such and such a place that you don't care about us? And, and, the, and the apostles responded, oh, well, no, this is important that everyone is taken care of, but this is not our job. We're going to appoint seven people to do this. So they appointed seven faithful men to oversee the feeding of everyone, including the widows. And so the problem was now solved, and everyone watched this happen. So in response to the church being the church, they said the word of God spread. So the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So number five is a large number of priests. So based on the testimony of the church that pointed to the change that was made in their lives because of Jesus, even priests who had formerly opposed Jesus believed. So basically, they had to say at some point, in their mind or in conversation, they had to say, you know what? This is what we were supposed to be doing but weren't. Now this group of people is. What's the difference? It's Jesus. So if Jesus is the difference, we want to be in the group that is following God, so we're going to follow Jesus. So in response to the testimony that pointed to Jesus, the priests, many priests, became obedient to faith. Number six... This is uh, kind of a, a historical statement covering lots and lots of time, but it says millions upon millions of people in the last 2,000 years have discovered that Jesus came into this world, lived a sinless life, allowed himself to be arrested, tortured, wrongly convicted, and crucified so that their sins could be forgiven and they could have a restored relationship with God. Remember, that was the goal, a restored relationship. And so people have discovered this. Why do we have to discover it? Because Satan is trying to distract us from it. Satan does not want us to, to fix our eyes upon Jesus. He does not want us to think about who he is or what he stands for. So we have to discover that Jesus came, that he was born of a virgin, that he lived a sinless life. As, as a sinless human, and, and, and as God, he was now eligible. He was, he was now adequate. He, he, was, he was chosen to be the sacrifice. And he allowed himself to be arrested. We mentioned last week that the soldiers and, and the Romans had no power over Jesus. They had no authority over Jesus. He, was, he only got there because he allowed these things to happen. And so his, his death and his resurrection point towards salvation. Who did this affect so far? Well, the centurion, the other guards, Joseph and Nicodemus, the apostles, the 3,000 who got saved, millions upon millions of others, and it's affected me and many of you. And then the last thing I want to ask is this question. What are you doing with your life as you take a real close, serious look at Jesus or take an up-close and personal look at Jesus? For those of you who are saved, your sins are forgiven, you have a relationship with God, uh, you, you've taken that step. I just want you to think on your own. What, what, is, what is my relationship with God? When I really zero in on Jesus, how is this affecting my life? How is it causing change? But for those who have not taken that step or don't know if they've taken that step, the last part is for you. 
So one, two, and three in your notes make one sentence, so I'll read that all together. You can fill in the blanks. They're short, easy words. Number one, if you are a sinner, then number two, you are facing the penalty of sin. Number three, unless you call out to God, accepting forgiveness. So the scriptures are there in your notes. If you pull out that sheet of paper, the various scriptures are on that sheet of paper. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I hope I don't need to convince anybody that we've sinned. If we have disobeyed our parents, if we have lied to anybody, if we have stolen anything, if we've let our mind go to anger and hatred, if we've slandered or gossiped, and we could go on and on and on, but we don't need to go any farther. If we've done any of these things, then, then we have sinned. And therefore, I am a sinner, and you are a sinner. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. That means there is a penalty to be paid. Because we have sinned, because we are sinners, there's a penalty to be paid, and that penalty is separation from God. Separation from God is a really nice way of saying eternity in hell. Eternity in hell has a little bit more force to it. The second half of the verse says, but the gift of God is eternal life. Eternal life is a way of saying we get to spend eternity in heaven with God. So there's a penalty for our sin, and since we're all sinners, we all face that penalty, but there's this thing called a gift. And number three, unless you call out to God accepting forgiveness, it's not yours. How do we call out to God? Well, we, we call out to God in prayer. So number four, if you want to call upon God for forgiveness, believing that he will forgive you through Jesus Christ, then now is a great time to make it a reality. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if you, can, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So there's a mental response, a, a spiritual response, I believe. And I ask myself, do I believe that Jesus was born of a virgin? That's a kind of a big deal. No one's ever done that before or since. Do I believe that he did that? Well, with all the other information I have about Jesus, I can believe that. So he was born of a virgin. Do I believe he lived a sinless life? Well, if he was God and he was born of a virgin, then yeah, he could live a sinless life. Well, did he face temptation? Yes, he did. Satan tempted him. Was he capable of sinning? Yes, or it wouldn't have been a temptation. But he rose above the temptation. So he faced temptation and did not sin. So as a sinless human who was also God, he was qualified and adequate to go to the cross. And on the cross... He died for my sins. Do I believe that? Do I believe that God loved me enough that he included me in the process and he died for my sins too? So yes, I believe he was born of a virgin. Yes, I believe he lived a sinless life. Yes, I believe he died on the cross. And yes, I believe I was included in that process. Therefore, my only response should be to accept the gift. How do I accept the gift? That's, that's, now, that's now the conversation. That's now when I call upon God and I say something like, Dear Jesus or Dear God, I believe I am a sinner. I admit that freely. I believe that my sin requires that I go to hell, but you've given a gift of Jesus so that my sins can be forgiven. And if I accept that gift and my sins are forgiven, I can go to heaven and be with you. I believe you are the Lord and you're in charge. Therefore, I will do things your way. And I live a life that's honoring to you. But right now, I accept the gift. 
And at that moment in time, when I tell God that I'm accepting the gift, he says, I have been waiting for this moment. It is yours. Take it. We receive forgiveness. Our sins are wiped away. We now have a relationship with God. It has been restored, which if you remember was the goal. We have a restored relationship with God, and now we are able to serve him. We are able to relate to him. We are able to interact with him. So my question is, if you've never done that, why not today? Why not today? What would keep you from doing this? Because we are all sinners. The penalty of sin is real. Jesus is real. And he's offering a gift. A gift must only be received for it to become yours. Why would we wait? And just in case there is somebody who has not received that gift yet, I want to give that opportunity. And everyone else is praying for you. They don't, they don't know who you are, perhaps. They don't know that you need this, but they're praying for you. And if you have received forgiveness, then you, you, only, you only need to do this once. Because sins that are forgiven are forgiven. They don't come back to haunt you. They are forgiven for eternity. And the forgiveness is never taken away by anybody. So if you have not received Christ as your Savior, that's another way of saying having your sins forgiven, I want to offer you a chance. So I'm going to pray a prayer, and I'm going to say those very things. And if you want to say that prayer to God, then I encourage you to do that. And if you mean it, and he'll know if you do, if you mean it, then you receive the gift and your sins are forgiven. So I'm going to do that very shortly. If, I'd just like everyone to bow their head and close their eyes. Because I just want to remove distractions. Don't feel like anybody's looking at the back of your head, because they're not. Only the pastor's looking around, and that's me. Okay? If you are feeling in your heart a need to be forgiven for the very first time, or to just make sure that you're forgiven because you weren't sure, this is the prayer that you can pray. So just pray it with me. Pray in your heart silently or out loud. God can hear both. Here's the prayer. Dear Jesus, I admit I'm a sinner. I believe you came to this earth as a, as a baby. And I believe you lived a sinless life. I also believe, believe you died on the cross to forgive sins. And that you want to forgive my sins as well. I believe you rose from the dead, proving you were God. I accept your gift of forgiveness. And I commit to living for you. Because you are Lord. And you are God. Thank you for forgiving my sins. In Jesus' name, amen. That's a salvation prayer. And, and I just kind of want to leave that in your hearts and minds. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close very quickly with, a, with just a closing prayer. And then we're going to be dismissed. And I encourage you to tell someone if you prayed that prayer. Because we would all be encouraged. And it would truly be an answer to prayer. So Father God, thank you for our time today. Thank you for all these examples of people who had a very intentional look at you and how they responded.
Thank you for the video that we watched and, and, and hopefully things we've learned today. May we take these things in our heart and home with us. May we ponder them. May we consider uh, who you are and what you're all about. And uh, Lord, if there's anyone here who's still not saved, just work on their heart. Let them remember the things and, 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 and just call them to yourself. Be with us today as we continue to celebrate Resurrection Sunday. And I thank you for everyone who's here, and I pray that you bless our afternoon. In Jesus' name, amen.